All right, I'm going to read from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24. It says this. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here, but he's risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words and returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stopping and looking in, stooping, sorry, and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves and he went home marvelling at what had happened. Now, this is one of the accounts... There are four accounts, Matthew, Mark and John have written the other accounts. This is one of the accounts of the resurrection. What happened, according to Luke, after the crucifixion, after Jesus was buried, on the first day of the week in the morning. This is one of the accounts of how it all happened. Now, I just want to really, at the start of the message, just highlight one thing from this passage today. And it's this, is that the resurrection was a real surprise. It surprised the women. You see, the reason why they took spices to the tomb was because Jesus had been uh, taken down from the cross and buried very quickly, wrapped up in linen, and they really wanted to give him a proper burial. They wanted to get the spices in just so that it was uh, um, it, the thing wasn't so gross. It was just a, a custom they did to make things smell a bit nicer. And so they weren't, they weren't ready for a resurrected Jesus. They weren't ready for... It wasn't, let's go to the tomb and see the resurrection. That wasn't it at all. They weren't expecting it. Uh, so they were surprised. And then when, when these angels, it seems they were angels, these two men in dazzling apparel, when they told them he's, he's risen, they went and they told the apostles. These are the guys who were supposed to be like the leaders of the church. And, and it said that they didn't believe either. And the point I want to make at the start of the message is just say this. The resurrection was a real surprise. It wasn't, it was, even though Jesus had predicted it numbers of times, it surprised his, even his closest followers they were like man we didn't think this was going to happen it had been in some way hidden from them even though they'd heard it with their physical ears when Jesus had told them in their hearts they hadn't got it they hadn't seen it Um, so it it was definitely a surprise but I think I want to ask the question tonight really and the underlying question is okay so it was a surprise but is it actually a big deal what difference does it actually make whether Jesus was resurrected or not. And that's really the driving force of the, question, the driving question of the whole message tonight. I want us to be having that in the back of our minds as I look at the whole thing. Okay, so it was a surprise, but you know what? Lots of things happen in life that are surprises, but it's no big deal. Okay, I wasn't expecting that, but it's not really changed anything. We'll just carry on as we are. Because you see, if we don't really get an understanding of, or if we don't have a sense of, 
what is God about? What is God doing? What is God's rescue plan if he has one at all? Then really the resurrection is in danger of becoming just irrelevant. It's like, well, okay, Christians get excited about Jesus being alive, but you know what? What's the big deal? If we understand what the Bible teaches about God's rescue plan, then it's very, very different. The stakes get raised, and uh, the stakes get raised significantly, and really we're faced with this situation. Either Jesus Christ is the ancient promised one who will rescue all of humanity from the tyranny of darkness and futility and will reign over heaven and earth forever by the power of an indestructible and resurrected life, calling all peoples, all nations and all cultures to worship him, or he isn't, and Christianity becomes a falsehood to be avoided at all costs. That's what I mean by the stakes getting raised. Okay? So I want to really spend tonight unpacking what the Bible teaches about God's rescue plan. Because that, will, that should help you grapple with whether or not the resurrection is a big deal for you. It's so important you get this, because these are big theological universal ideas and, 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 and concepts, and that can make it feel impersonal. Let me just say, this stuff has impact, I believe, and convinced the Bible teaches has impact for um, your eternal destiny, for your whole understanding of who you are and why you're here. I mean, it's huge. It really does. And those kind of those ideas, especially who you are and why you're here, they drive the whole way we live. That drives the decisions you make. It drives the attitudes you have. It drives everything about you. So I want to put it to you that the idea of the resurrection hits on that in a big way. So hopefully that will be enough for you to lock in and follow through with me as we really, really look at the whole story of the Bible tonight in one sense. Um, now you can look at the Bible through lots of different ways. The whole story of God's rescue plan is like a, a beautiful tapestry. Um, and there's many different threads, but I want us to look at it through a, a, a kingly royal thread tonight. And hopefully it won't just uh, stimulate your mind, but hopefully it will ravish your heart to some degree and it will, it will just be a tonic to your, to your spirit. We'll start at creation. It's the place where you need to start. The Bible teaches that when God made people, he made them in his image. The main reason being that what would happen is, is that as we multiplied and filled the earth, we would represent him wherever we went and we would represent his rule. So that's why he said to Adam and Eve, look, subdue creation and rule over it. Rule over it representing me. So the idea is, is that you and me, while we are here, is to reflect God, the creator, and represent his rule on the earth. That's why you're here. To represent his rule over all creation, over all the living creatures, over all of the inanimate things, and to steward it well. That's the plan. The plan is, is that we would walk in the authority of God and would use that authority well, wouldn't use it to oppress, wouldn't use it um, to abuse, but would use it in the same way God uses authority, which is in kindness, which is in compassion, which is in, uh, uh, in love, which is in perfect, really, use of authority. And so that's the picture. It's a beautiful picture. That's what we're made for. Then we get what we call the, the fall, the situation where God says, you know what, there's just one thing you can't do, just one prohibition. There's that one tree over there. Just don't, don't eat from the fruit from that tree. And then enter Satan uh, in the form of a serpent in the, in the story in Genesis. And he comes and he, he tempts them. He, 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 well, actually, he goes for Eve and he says, uh, he says, is it true that God says you can't eat from any of the trees of the garden? Satan, this is what Satan does. He make, paints God in a bad light. Right? Is it true? God says you can't eat from any tree. So he's like, no, we can. It's just that one over there. God says if we eat it or even touch it, we're going to die. You won't surely die. He says you're going to be just like God. 
you could know, you could have a better way. You could be like him. He's only saying that because he doesn't want you to get, be like him. He want, he's protecting that thing. So he wants this kind of God thing to himself. You eat that fruit, you're going to be just like him. So it says it sounded, sounded appealing to Eve, that kind of wisdom like God, and the fruit looked appealing to the eye, and so they ate the fruit. And at that, at that moment, the Bible teaches that really uh, the, the corruption came in. And so we, we fall, Adam and Eve, and that's our parents, they fell uh, away from that place of walking with God, representing him to a place of corruption. And in doing so, in cooperating with Satan, they really let him become the usurper king. He becomes the, the usurper king, which is why the Bible calls him the ruler of this age. Now what that means is this, is that he's the key influencer in human culture, philosophy, etc., etc., human thought. Now I don't, I'm not talking about a red figure with a pitchfork tower or anything like that, so please, I'm talking about uh, a spirit... Uh, who is a primary, uh, highly intelligent and highly deceptive. So he will not dance around with a pitchfork tower saying, hi, it's me, the devil. Just come to say, <laughs> you're the devil, you're bad, I'm not going to listen to you. He doesn't do that, okay? But comes and seduces and deceives and these kinds of things and uh, very much works behind the scenes of people. But what you find is mankind really rebelling against God and cooperating with him and in doing so, falling from their position of, uh, of reigning with God and really giving that away, if you like. To Satan who just comes in and usurps it. God comes and he holds the man, the woman and the serpent to account. He, he, he calls them and he, he pronounces righteous judgment on them for their actions. And then we're really going to just focus on this one passage from the scripture today. Where in Genesis 3, this is what God says to Satan. Um, Genesis 3 um, verse 15. Speaking to uh, Satan, the usurper king. He, sa- he says, I will put enmity, that means hostility, between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He, that's her offspring, so someone that will come from Eve, someone, a human if you like, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, what, what, it's kind of poetic, what does it mean? It's the first prom- clear promise in the Bible, and it's right near the beginning, which is good to hear. That God, even in the middle of judgment, and God's saying, you guys, he's judging them. In the middle of that, he brings promise of a saviour king. And he says, here's how it's going to work. This saviour king, he's going to bruise your head. That means he's going to fatally wound you. He's going to destroy you, strip you of all of your false authority. But, he says here, you will bruise his heel. So what does that mean? In the process of doing so, this saviour king will be injured. He will be hurt and damaged in some way. So we've got this ancient, ancient, millenniums old promise that God comes in straight away, says there's one coming, there's a saviour king coming. Are you with me? Okay, you've got the picture. Now what then follows is by no means inconsequential or uh, uh, unimportant, but I'm going to sum it up, I'm going to condense it by saying thousands of years of promises. Thousands of years, of, uh, and you'll primarily find these promises in the book of Psalms, Isaiah and Daniel. And it's the promise about this king. The, the, the God raised up these prophets and they develop, develop these ideas. And we begin to understand and get a picture of something about this king. There are certain things that we discover uh, um, about him. What, he's going, what this servant king is going to be like. What this saviour king is going to be like. We discover that uh, his kingdom will have humble beginnings. It won't be very impressive to start off with. But actually it will go on to become eternal and will fill the whole earth. We also discover that although he is a saviour king, he's also a suffering servant. He's not, he's, it's, it's a kind of a, it's, it feels like a paradox. It's like 
these, these amazing prophecies of this glorious king and then woven into it these terrible kind of terrible ideas of this same figure just dying, this same figure going through agonies, rejection, betrayal. And it's a real kind of, you think, man, how on earth can that weave in with that? But prophetically, that's what's coming to me. We've got this suffering servant, saviour king. Enter Jesus Christ. Um, I'm going to argue he is that saviour king as we go through tonight. But enter Jesus Christ, born, I think, you know, the theologians say around about 4 AD. And um, right from the beginning, we find very humble beginnings. In terms of, it was laid in a manger in a feeding trough. It's very much unexpected. And then, but then at the same time, we have these wise men or kings or whatever they were from the east. They arrive bringing these amazing gifts. They bring, they bring frankincense. Why? Well, frankincense was used in worship. They're saying, this is a god. This is, this is god. Hey, god. This is god. Myrrh. Myrrh was what they would um, wrap up their bodies in. It was for his burial because this is a king who came to die. They bring gold. Why? It's what you bring a king. And so his humble beginning, he's in, a, he's in a feeding trough for goodness sake, you know? And yet, and yet there's this gift for a king. You think, what is going on here? It looks like these prophecies are, are coming together. Then, then we find uh, Satan, the usurper king, wants to obviously kill off this king as soon as possible. And so he inspires and gets behind Herod, who's a, the wicked Jewish king, um, to kill every child in the region, age two and under. And so that happens. Just before it happens, God warns Joseph in a dream. Joseph, Mary, and Jesus, they, they flee to Egypt. Jesus becomes the exiled king, king in exile. And they're in Egypt for some years until Herod dies. Then they move back and they move to the north of the country, Nazareth, where Jesus grows up. Jesus becomes an adult and, um, and he's baptized. And then after his baptism, the Holy Spirit leads him into the wilderness where he has a face-off with Satan, the usurper king. So it's, like, it's a little bit like being back in Eden, okay? It's like, man, what's going to happen? Um, Satan's probably got an idea at this point who this guy is. And uh, Jesus has certainly been trained in the scriptures. Man alive, when he was 12 years old, he could hold his own with the scholars. So he's been reading his Bible, right? And he's, he's got the idea by now. He knows who he is. So, so he gets led by the Spirit into the wilderness, fast for 40 days, and then Satan comes and brings in the temptations. But the one I want to highlight on is this. He says, if you will just bow down to me, Jesus, I will give you all the kingdoms of the earth. For I have, that authority has been given me to do so. So it's an interesting comment, because it, if that wasn't true, it wouldn't be a real temptation. So what we're seeing here is that Satan genuinely, he's the ruler of this age. There's this, there's this authority, if you like, through Adam and his sin that was given to him to be able to have some sway in the earth. And he says, Jesus, just bow down just once and the whole lot is yours. It's a, it is a huge moment in salvation history. What does Jesus do? He simply quotes the Bible. He says, it's written, you shall worship the Lord your God and you shall serve him only. I'm not, I'm not bound down to you. And then Jesus, we say, from the wilderness, he enters back into civilization, filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, filled with authority. He's got authority over demons, casting people, uh, demons out of people, setting them free, tormenting people. He's healing the sick. It's glorious miracles are going on. He's a compassionate king, and a king with great authority. He frequents parties and places you wouldn't expect a religious man to be. He hangs around with tax collectors, prostitutes, sinners. He's a, why? Because he's a healing, transforming king. He's bringing life change. The religious kings, if you like, hate him. Envious, why? Because the common people hang on his every word and because he's got authority over sickness and they realise and recognise themselves to be pretenders and they, they hate him for it. And, and, and so they begin to conspire. How are we going to kill him? How are we going to destroy him? What are we, what are we um, going to do to get rid of um, to get rid of this man. 
Jesus, just before he's arrested, is in another garden, not Eden, Gethsemane. It's one of his favourite places to be, it would seem. And there we have another moment. It's the rever- I would say it's the reversal of the Garden of Eden. Now, you've got to get this. You think, why? Here's why God's plan is to have a man rule. Originally, Adam and Eve, they were to fill the earth with his presence, with his glory. They messed it up. God never goes through a plan B, because he's God. He doesn't have to. <laughs> his purposes never get thwarted. So God's plan is, I'm going to have a man. And he's going to rule and reign well on my behalf. And there's going to be a whole load of others that come under this man that will multiply and fill the earth. See, it's God's original plan. You're in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus is just starting now to face something of the horror of the cross. (coughs) For the first time, we see composed Jesus breaking down. He says to his closest disciples, my soul is grieved to the point of death. Please stay with me and pray with me. He's in a bad way. They stay there. He walks off a stone's throw away and begins sweating drops of blood, such as the hypertension he's experiencing. And he says, Father, if there's another way, please, uh, please can it be? And yet, not my will, yours be done. It's the opposite, you see. In the Garden of Eden, Eve says, not his will, mine be done. I want to be like him. She substitutes herself for God. Jesus is just about to substitute himself for us on the cross. Take our punishment. And he says, Father, not my will, yours be done. He's a humble king. He's a glorious king. He's a resolute king. He came to rescue. He came to save. Then he's arrested, taken to Pilate, who was the Roman king. Pilate knows he's innocent, questions him. says, I can't find any guilt in a man. What? What? And says to the Jews, what? Just, just let him go. He's not, he hasn't done anything wrong. And they, they chant and cry out, oh, crucify him, crucify him. And in the end, he, he becomes an abdicating king. He says, fine, I'll wash my hands. And hands him over for execution. But he says, I want to do this one thing. I want to put this board above the cross, which says, king of the Jews. And then the religious, religious leaders say, no, don't put king of the Jews. Put, he claimed to be the king of the Jews. At this point, Pilate says, what I've written, I've written. And I think he said that because actually what he's saying is, do you know what? This is my way of saying, I believed you. And so he's hanging there on the cross, crucified. Okay? And it looks terrible. It looks like the biggest disaster ever. His disciples are confused. His mum, obviously, can't believe it. Distraught. But the Bible says this, that at, at the cross, that was the place where the victory happened. That was the place where Jesus stripped the satanic and demonic rulers and authorities of their power and of their authority. The Bible says that. The Bible is clear that it was not a defeat, that it was a victory. How so? Here's how so. What caused the problem? Primarily not Satan. What caused the problem? Our sin. You see, Satan came along and tempted Adam and Eve. If they just said, no, we're going to follow the Lord, no problem. The big problem was when we said, yeah, we're not going to believe him. We're not going to trust him. We're going to just go with what looks best with our eyes and what we think is a nice idea, what can promote ourselves. Our sin is the problem. Why is the cross such a victory? Because at the cross, Jesus says, do you know what? I am going to die in their place. I am going to hang there for them. I, in my own body, am going to receive the judgment and the punishment for their sin, for the sins of the whole world. And in doing so, he's strips Satan of all of his authority because all of Satan's authority is based on our sin. Jesus deals with sin at the cross. It's glorious. It's a glorious moment. He's a broken king, but he's a victorious king. 
Jesus dies. They lay him in a tomb. Now it's important just to say that he died. I want to just highlight that for a moment. Because if you're here, you're, maybe you're here as a Muslim, or maybe you have a lot, spend a lot of time with Muslims and talk with them about these things. They would say, no, Jesus swooned. Okay? They would say, no, Jesus fainted. He didn't die on the cross. He swooned on the cross. Which explains why people saw him again afterwards. Let me just explain a thing or two about crucifixion. The Romans were expert executioners. They crucified hundreds of thousands of people. And to, to make sure people were dead on the cross, they would, they would break their legs before... They break, and here's why. Because if you're being crucified on the cross like this, um, obviously your body, just due to gravity, would just be hanging down. And what would begin to happen after some time, I think build up a fluid and other things, you begin to asphyxiate and suffocate. And so you would use your legs to push yourself up just a human instinct for life, to keep yourself breathing. Well, when the Romans wanted, it became an inconvenience, they wanted people to die quicker, they would just smash their legs. That way they could no longer lift themselves up. Now, we read that the, the Jews, they didn't, want, they didn't want people still hanging up on the crosses during their kind of holy days, you know. Um, and, so, and so the Romans went to smash Jesus' legs as well as the other two um, uh, either, uh, criminals either side of him. They get to Jesus, they put a spear through his side, because he seems to have died. They put a spear through his side and blood and water come out, but they're, they're separated and that's a medical sign that someone is truly dead. And so they don't break his legs, which is very important, because one of the Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah was that not one of his bones would be broken. It's all just working together, tragically, but, but beautifully. So he dies. They lay him in a tomb, and then we get this resurrection thing that we're going to focus on, um, uh, just by way of conclusion. He seems to rise from the dead, okay? And it's like, oh, what? And, and it's, it's perplexing. It doesn't, it doesn't seem really to add up, because um, the Romans were guarding the tomb, and, um, you know, we know that the disciples, like you and me, bless them, jokers, really. And there's no way they could have overcome Roman soldiers. You know, I mean, there are a few fishermen, a tax collector, you know. Uh, one, probably one of the guys could fight, um, you know, the, the zealot. But other than that, you know, what are they going to do? Throw their nets over them. I mean, you know. <laughs> Roman soldiers are guarding it. It's all, it's all been sealed. I mean, it, you know, the authorities, uh, you know, they say, look, we've got to make sure, you know, that this thing is, is, is kept contained. And it's suddenly the stone's gone. The Roman guards, uh, you know, they just, no one knows what sort of become of them really you know they, they, they're paid hush money to just keep quiet about it and no one can find the body of Jesus Christ so, so the, we've got the resurrection we're going to look at in just a second but I want to just stick with the grand plan for the moment um, but Jesus uh, gives 40 days uh, has 40 days with his disciples risen on the earth where he gives various proofs um, which we'll look at in a second then he ascends back um, to heaven with the father with the promise that he will return in the same way i.e. physically and we now live in the age between his first coming and his second coming Okay, so it's been a long time. I know it's been a long time. <laughs> I know what you're thinking. It's been a long time. It's been a long time. Um, yes, the Bible says it's been so long because uh, it's not God being slack about his promise, but it's God being patient because he wants none to perish, but all to come to salvation. Amen. 2 Peter chapter 3, it says that. Okay, so they were saying it was a long time back in AD 70. <laughs> so it's been a really, it's been a long time. Okay. <laughs> um, now, what, so what's happening in this age? Well, the Bible says in this age that he is ruling and reigning as king in heaven. And that in this age, he is waiting until all of his enemies become, sub, become a footstool for his feet, and then he's going to return. So what does that mean? Well, it means that the church's job as the body of Christ is to bring in the rule of Jesus on earth by proclaiming the gospel, by ministering to the needy, by healing the sick, by casting out demons, and all those things that are enemies of God, injustice, oppression, abuse, sin, increasingly as the church brings the rule of Christ on the earth, those enemies are, are, are really expelled, if you like, under the feet of Jesus, under the church, and then Jesus will return. 
He will, he will recreate brand new heavens and a brand new earth. And those who love him will reign with him forever. And those who don't will experience really what they've chosen, which is not to be with Jesus, not to be enjoying the presence and the love of Jesus, but instead to be experiencing the judgment of Jesus for their sin, which they've not repented of and not asked for forgiveness for. That's the story. That's God's plan of salvation. That's what's going on. Okay. Now, I want to just focus on the resurrection because obviously it's quite a big deal. If that bit didn't happen, do you know what? It throws into question everything. If he didn't physically rise from the dead, it throws everything into question. Would you like to know how? Yes. <laughs> hmm. Hmm. That would be interesting. Number one. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, he wasn't sinless. Because the Bible teaches this. So it's a very powerful phrase. The sting of death is sin. What's the big deal about the wasp? What's the big deal? Is it the stripes? It's the sting. Why is it that, what do you say? The wings. The wings. You're the doctor. Don't get medical on a stock, all right? Why is it, if you're in a room, and a fly flies in, and a wasp flies in, people react in very, very different ways. What's the, what's the difference? It's the sting. The Bible says the sting of death is sin. What does that mean? It's saying, do you know what? What's the big deal? The big thing, the big problem with death, why death is so powerful is this, is that when we die, we've died really because we are all sinful and sin is a decayer. Sin is really just brings death with it. And then the power of death is able to hold us. If you like to get its claws into us, why? Because we've sinned. Now, what do I mean by sin? Maybe we just take the Ten Commandments, if you like. Just to, everything that is really disobeying, it's disobeying God, okay? It's God, breaking God's law. So if I said you're lawbreakers, some of you would be offended because you might feel like you're very upright citizens. I'm not talking necessarily about the laws of the land, but before God are all lawbreakers. Okay, so do not commit adultery. You might say, well, I haven't committed adultery. But Jesus said, you look at a woman to lust after her, you've committed adultery in your heart. Okay? So these kind of laws get right to the heart. It's not just the externals. That's why we're all in such big trouble. We're all lawbreakers in that sense. It's just it's the same as saying we're sinners. So what, so, so, and so death is able to think it's claws into us and hold on to us. And why? Well, because we've sinned. We've broken God's law. And so we're done for in that sense. Now, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, that means he wasn't sinless. Because death's been able to keep a hold on him. Death has no authority over a sinless person. Therefore, if Jesus was sinless, he could have escaped from death. But if he wasn't, then he's just like you and me. Sinful. And not able to escape death. Therefore, he's not a saviour king. Number two. If Jesus didn't rise again, then the cross was a waste of time. Total waste of time. It throws the death of Christ into question. Why? Well, the whole idea with the death of Christ was this. Was that someone who was not like Adam and Eve, someone who hadn't sinned, would give himself up willingly as a sacrifice, as a substitute in place of sinners. So the righteous would die on behalf of the unrighteous, would face the judgment of the unrighteous, and, and then the, the wonderful perfection of the righteous would go onto the unrighteous as a gift. It's like a swap, a substitute. If Jesus is sinless, the sacrifice on the cross doesn't work either. So the cross is thrown into question. Thirdly, if 
Jesus didn't rise again, then he's not that prophesied hero king of Genesis 3, is he? He's not the Satan stomper. He's not the snake snapper. He's not. Because only his heel would be bruised. What does that mean? It means that he wouldn't be fatally, finally killed off forever as a result of his showdown with the devil. A dead king is no king. Long live the king. Fourthly, Jesus didn't rise again, then you and me have no hope of eternal life. Why? How can someone who didn't even manage to defeat death himself promise to give us all eternal life? It's an empty claim, isn't it? It's an, it's an empty claim. If he himself has not got eternal life, if he himself didn't beat death, then when he says, you know what, you believe in me, which he does, he promises, if you put your trust in me, you'll have eternal life. He promises it. It can only be true if he himself has eternal life. You can only give what you've got, can't you? Fifthly, if Jesus didn't rise again, all his claims of being the son of God and the rescuer are false, and he turns out to be a liar. It's getting pretty bad, isn't it? It's getting... I want to show you that it's not, well, you know, maybe did, maybe didn't. No, he either did, and let's follow him, or he didn't, and let's reject him. Let's stop all this Sunday night, hands in the air business. Come on, stop it, it's silly. It's really silly if he didn't rise from the dead. It's a waste of time, it's delusional. Just be down the pub. Just, do what you, just go and do what you do. Go and eat your chocolate eggs. That's Easter. That is Easter. Okay? If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then he is wrong about the future. Because he repeatedly predicted he would rise from the dead. But he didn't. So he doesn't know the future. And he's also dead. So, we better not trust our future to him. See, I'm, I want to urge every one of you in this room tonight to entrust your future entirely to Jesus and put your trust in him. Absolutely. I urge you, I plead with you, I beg with you, put your trust entirely in him for your future. But only do that if he knows the future. Yeah? Otherwise, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then God's plan to have a man rule the earth has failed because no one rose from the dead before Jesus and no one has done since. So the whole thing's up in the air and up for grabs. Finally, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, the Bible is full of false prophecies because it predicts that God will not let his Holy One, the Messiah, see decay. And he obviously has. It throws everything up in the air. If God is really out to rescue the earth in the manner the Bible says, then if Jesus did not rise from the dead, not only are Christians to be the most pitied people on the planet, but more seriously, we are all doomed. Aren't you glad he's alive? Everyone's <laughs> like, oh man. He, he, he rose. <laughs> I forgot to say. Oh, I'm sorry. He rose from the dead. I mean, he had a, he had a, he, I mean, he had a heck of a time trying to convince his disciples because they didn't believe it, actually. They, when Mary and Martha and those guys went and said, they, it seemed like an idle tale, like, I'll leave it out. You know? <laughs> What do you mean? Seemed idle. Seemed like, and, and, then, and, then, um, and then Jesus appeared to 11 of them, but one called Thomas wasn't there. And Thomas said, you know what? I'm not, I'm not, even all 11 of them, we knew. He knew them. He said, oh, sorry, actually at this point, there's only 10 of the others. He said, I, I, I'm not going to believe unless I actually put my hand in the holes. And then next time Jesus appeared to him and says, there you go, Thomas. And what did he do? The Bible says that he just fell on his face and said, my Lord and my God. 
when Jesus appeared to the ten, he said, he said give me some fish. Why did they give me some fish? Because they were going, it's a ghost. A ghost can't eat. Okay, he just dropped straight through. Jesus said, give me the fish. You can imagine him going. <laughs> so, I mean, you couldn't make this stuff up if you tried. It's all so desperately human and flawed. And uh, you see yourself in those disciples. He spent 40 days with them. Appearing to them in different ways and just explaining from the scriptures how it had all been promised and prophesied and how he was the living fulfillment of it. How all the scriptures spoke about him. He spent time with them walking, talking, even cooked breakfast for some of them on the beach one morning. I mean, it's just glorious. Jesus clearly rose from the dead. No one ever produced the body. You know, if you think, you know, because their disciples caused a storm in Jerusalem, going around saying to everyone he's risen. At that point, don't you think the leaders would have produced the... No, it's not. Look, no one did. Why? Well, because there wasn't one. It could have been very, very easily dispelled, just bringing out the corpse, well, no one ever did, because he's alive. And if you like, one of the most powerful evidences for Jesus being alive is this, is it says in the Bible that after Jesus would be glorified, i.e. go back to the Father, he would send the Holy Spirit. So Jesus promised his disciples, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. When I go, I'm going to send one just like me. But the glory of it is, he will live inside of you individually, and you'll be able to be like, just walk, you're all walking with Jesus in, in, in that sense. Well, the Holy Spirit has been poured out. And anyone in this room who is a believer, they will tell you their life is not perfect. Okay? But they will also tell you that they know the Holy Spirit indwells them. And they can't shake it off. You can't pretend. You can't, you, you, I've been a Christian 18 years. I've been a Christian half my life now. And um, I'm 26, in case you're wondering. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> right. And, and, and the weird thing is, to be honest, I'd be really honest, there are times as a Christian where I just, I think, do you know what? This is really hard and really dull. Okay? I really don't want to pray because it feels like no one's there. And I'm reading the Bible and then two minutes later, oh, I can't tell you a thing I've read. And I'm trying to love people and making more mistakes and doing things well. And... It's, it's, it was a lot easier in some ways being, being, not being a Christian because I wasn't living just aware of the perfection of this holy God. <laughs> you know, suddenly you're just aware of it when God reveals himself. So you think, oh man, you know, man alive. And, 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 and when you're just having a hard time, you think, you know what? It feels like it would just be easier to just throw the towel in. But the work, when God's... When God, when you become a Christian, you repent of your sins, you put your trust in Jesus, there's a work of such deep grace in you. you. The only way you can shake it off, if you like, or walk away, is by living in unreality. That's how I put it. The only way you can walk away from Jesus is by pretending. Because even when it's tough, and even when you just feel like, you, all you can do is put one foot in front of the other. That's all you can do sometimes. Or just stand. Just say, do you know what? I'm just not going backwards. <laughs> I'm just going to stand. Because it feels like everything's coming at you. Yeah, and you just feel, because why? I can't shake off this beautiful Jesus. I can't. He's altogether lovely. He's, he's just the business, and you, you can't, and, and, and you just love him. And sometimes you feel, oh, I'm not sure my love for him is that impressive, you know, I don't think, but you just know that you know, and that's, that's what happens. That's the Holy Spirit, in case you're wondering. I'm thinking, oh, I thought, you know, healing the sick, crash bang, what up there are those seasons and more of them, please, Jesus. All right? Absolutely. I'm totally up for those. But in just as much a way, the Holy Spirit comes to, to, to reveal Jesus Christ to us. 
Not a Jesus of our own imagination, the Jesus of the Bible. And it's glorious, and it's resurrection life. And sometimes it's all singing or dancing, and sometimes you have to cry a bit. But I tell you, it's resurrection life. It's resurrection life. And I wanna, for those of you that have never known resurrection life, let me tell you, resurrection life is glorious. It's glorious. Like I say, I've followed, I've followed him for 18 years, and most of the pain is due to my stupidity. Some of the pain is just him, he's being a wonderful father who's disciplining me because he loves me and he needs to just work some of the rubbish out of me. So it hurts a bit sometimes. He's always good. Always perfectly good. I, I, I'm, I'm honoured to testify. He is always perfect. Always. And things that he don't understand, how does that work? He's always good. Hand on my heart. He's, he's awesome. So I want to just finish really just by saying to those of you that don't know the Lord, I'm going to wrap up by saying this. They came to the tomb on the first day of the week and it was deliberate. Why? Because it's a new creation. It's speaking about new creation. In Jesus Christ, there's new life. He wants to give you that. They didn't find him in the tomb. They didn't find him where they expected him to be. Why? Because you can't keep him contained. If you want to follow Jesus, he wants everything. Okay? He wants the lot. He wants your heart, your mind, your soul, your strength. He wants everything. So if, if you're going to come to him, great, but you come when you give him everything. Okay? You can't keep parts back. And then there's angels with dazzling clothes on and all that. Okay? Point being, around Jesus there's supernatural activity. Okay? I believe in angels, I believe in demons, I believe in healings and miracles and all of those things. I, I, I love the supernatural as long as it points to Jesus. Any other supernatural is occultic. Okay? It's from the evil one, it's demonic, and I don't want nothing to do with it, and nor should you. And if you're into it, please turn away from it and come to Jesus. Because that's dark and he's light. Okay? Yeah? But, so I'm just saying three things. Number one, you come to Jesus, it's new life. He wants everything, and it is seriously supernatural. Okay? And one final word to those of you now that are believers. I want to say this. Um, that they, Mary and Martha and the ladies, they went and told the others. And I want to say this. Go and tell the others. Tell the others he's alive. Because people don't know. Don't assume they know. Don't assume they're not interested. You know what? They went and told the others and the others thought it was an idle tale. But six weeks later, one of those others is preaching and seeing 3,000 saved. Okay? Because he initially sounded like an idle tale and then God, God started going to work in his, in his heart. So whether people think it's an idle tale, no matter how they respond, please tell them. Please tell those around you that Jesus is amazing. Please tell them he's alive. Please tell them because they need to know. And even if they laugh you off, mock you, scoff, doesn't matter. God can go to work through what you've put into their heart. You've simply sown something in, leave it with the Lord. Please, I urge you, I plead with you, part of why we are here, as well as to do good and show mercy, is to tell the others. Keep telling them, don't go quiet for the glory of God. Amen? Amen. I'm sure, uh, I hope after hearing about your a wonderful resurrected king that you'd love to just tell him you love him some more and sing to him and praise him and let's let the spirit lead us in that.